0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered
1: by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School.
2: Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashford. I'm Cheryl Coolen. And we have had a great show so far, and so we're pleased to welcome Sarah Light, an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Thanks for for coming in. Hopefully it wasn't too long of a walk from your office.
1: (laughs) No, down from the sixth floor to uh, the first floor. I managed. I managed. I had lots of water. Hey, we have
2: to come back from a a different building. It's all the way across campus. A whole two-minute walk.
1: Yes, (laughs) and it's actually kind of chilly today. It
2: is chilly here in
0: coming. really feeling like
2: fall. The leaves should be going soon. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about your research interests. So without getting too wonky for our audience, but, you know, sort of you're in the I legal guess. studies and business ethics department. What does that mean? How is it? What's your fit there?
1: Great. So really, really good question. Um, my background and training is in law. And so A recovering being lawyer. I'm not a recovering lawyer. I'm a proud, formerly practicing lawyer Uh who brings my legal expertise into the business community. And what I really try to do in my research is kind of build bridges between business research and legal research. So my research focuses on the intersection of corporate sustainability and environmental law. And you can imagine coming at that big-picture question from a number of different angles. So one angle could be there's a new environmental law. How are businesses reacting to it? That's the kind of passive model of business as recipient of law. Um, But another stream of my research um, actually focuses on the ways in which private actors, including business firms as well as nonprofit organizations, actually create a kind of quasi-environmental law sort of a body of environmental law called private environmental governance. So to give you one very sort of non-wonky example, think about Walmart. Walmart is the you know largest retailer. Um, if Walmart says to all of its suppliers, you need to reduce your packaging right. or you need to – if you want a contract with us, you have to disclose the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the products that we are selling, um, that we've purchased from you. That is not law, right? It's not Congress or the state of Rhode Island or something like that adopting a law. But Walmart business pressure is having essentially the same effect. So that would be one example of private environmental governance. Another example would be something like an industry setting standards for laundry detergent or an industry setting standards for how um you know for what chemicals can and can't be used in certain kinds of products again it's all private it's not backed by the sanction of the state but it is a form of environmental governance so i i focus a lot on that kind of work and then the pressure then comes um not from penalties
0: or jail but from compliance and if you don't comply you're not in our supply chain and you lose out on that business
1: exactly but when you think about a, you know a store this or a retailer the size of Walmart that actually their decision to require disclosing of greenhouse gas emissions or to say we're not going to purchase electronics that have x chemical in them that could have as big an impact as yeah. the state of Rhode Island saying we will not you know, do X or you must do Y. So it actually can have a real impact.
2: So on the show and in our office, we, we are very curious about the motivations of these decisions, especially when they're voluntary. Um, and so whether you're talking about a big corporate entity like Walmart, you know, an actor that has influence on multiple parties or an industry coming together around standards themselves motive? What From your research, what's motivating them to do this voluntarily?
1: Right. So, um, so that's a great question. This has not been a specific area of my own research, but I can sort of highlight some examples from other people's research. Um, there are a number of different factors that motivate firms. One is in some cases there's actually a kind of win-win to it. So um, the, the most obvious example would be by cutting energy costs – you know, replacing incandescent light bulbs in your stores with compact fluorescent or LED lights, you are actually being more efficient from an environmental perspective, but you're also cutting your energy costs. So some of it's pure, you know, self-interested motivation to reduce costs. Other benefits include reputational benefits. So one... um, brand or company is able to stand out as an environmental leader, and that may be something that's important to customers, Um, it may be important to the local community. Um, Sometimes it's reactive, So the idea is we're going to put in place this private industry standard government. You don't need to do this. We've got this covered, right? So it's an effort to kind of stave off government regulation. Which could be less under their control and who knows what happens with
0: those, right? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. In some cases, it may be to get a competitive advantage. So I wrote a paper um, a few years ago about private carbon taxes. Right. You've heard of public carbon taxes. Mm -hmm. You've heard of emissions trading, things like the European Union emissions trading system. There are actually a number of a significant number of private firms that have adopted internal private carbon fees where business units are charged a fee on the carbon emissions of their operations that they have to pay into the centralized you know, fund mm. at the firm, and then that fund is used to f- to support renewable energy projects or something like that. so I wrote about this Microsoft does this um, and one of the reasons why Microsoft arguably does this is to sort of gain a competitive advantage and it promotes other businesses doing this and it says, oh, and by the way, our cloud computing system is." neutral with respect to carbon emissions. So if you, other firm, put all of your computing onto our cloud, thereby generating business for Microsoft, you will actually reduce your carbon emissions. And isn't that great for you? So there are some aspects of that as well. But obviously, different firms respond differently, even to similar types of pressures. Um, And um, while Arguably, a lot of these actions are voluntary. I would argue um, and have argued in a recent paper that much of it is actually shaped by the legal environment in which firms operate.
0: Could you go into that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So I've written this paper, which is going to come out in January, called The Law of the Corporation as Environmental Law. Um, When we think about what environmental law is, the sort of the law school class – Um, We – or just in the news, you know, and you're thinking, oh, this is environmental law. You think about things like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or the, you know, Toxic Substances Control Act. Um, My argument is that when we think about the way that firms interact with the environment and whether they comply in full with the traditional kinds of environmental law like the Clean Water Act or whether they go above and beyond and do these kinds of private environmental governance type actions – It's not purely voluntary. They're shaped by the legal regime that governs the markets in which they operate. So they are governed by corporate law at their birth, what their duties are to their shareholders or what their duties are to their stakeholders and whose interests they need to take into account and is their job simply to maximize profit or to take a more long-term approach and take into account the interests of employees and customers. Um, They are shaped in the way that they interact with other firms in the marketplace by antitrust law. So I gave some examples about private industry standard setting. If a whole set of firms wants to get together in a room and talk about how they're all going to cooperate on something, um, you can imagine that there may be antitrust concerns. So they might Mm -hmm. be doing it for environmental reasons, but they also might be doing it to keep out – competitors, or they might be doing it to keep their prices high. Mm-hmm. And so the way that the antitrust Collu- laws is, is work... Is that
2: collusion in that sense? Um, it <laughs> or it
1: would could be, be? It would be anti-competitive behavior Okay, under the antitrust laws. Um, Which so, is so funny. We yeah. usually like anti-competitive behavior
0: well,
1: with kids. Yes, we do. That is true. <laughs> that is true. We want people to cooperate, but not necessarily with firms, right? The right. view is that uh, competition is what's good for consumers. And um, there's an issue when There's so much competition that potentially there's um, a conflict with a conservation-related goal, right? Sometimes you actually don't want the maximum amount of competition if you're trying to, say, preserve a sustainable fishery. So – and then bankruptcy law, likewise, you know, when a firm is facing financial trouble and reorganizes, that has an impact – what you can discharge as part of a bankruptcy proceeding, your old debts, um, has an impact on whether you're going to comply in full with environmental laws or whether you're able to shed your environmental liability. So this this paper, The Law of the Corporation as Environmental Law, is essentially making the argument it's not all voluntary. Mm, mm-hmm. And so if we want to encourage firms to take more of these positive environmental actions as a private matter, we need to think about reshaping the legal environment in which the firm is born, what's in its code, how is it being driven to, you know, what's its production function, um, and how is it being told that it's allowed to interact with other firms in the market.
2: So shifting gears slightly, but, you know, we just now got a a pretty good overview of your interest in this area, but you're a former prosecutor, too. So why the shift? What made you get really interested in this topic that you're going to come to academia and focus on this for
1: tenure? <laughs> right, right. Yes, absolutely. So it's a great question um, because I came to Wharton in a slightly non traditional way. A lot of professors come here straight out of a PhD program. I, on the other hand, after going to law school and clerking for a judge, um, went to work in New York at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York for 10 years in the Civil Division. Um, and the last four years I spent as the chief of the Environmental. Environmental Protection Unit. So I never put anyone in jail. That was not my job. I did exclusively civil cases, which basically meant enforcing laws on behalf of the United States and its agencies, often the EPA, um, and defending regulations when they were challenged. And it was great. Um, But the irony is that that was the detour. So when I went to law school, I had anticipated that I would become a professor, Mm. and I never imagined finding a job practicing law that I would love. And, in fact, I did It was great. I tried cases, I argued motions. you know, my first week on the job, I got to go to court and argue a motion against someone who I believe had graduated from law school the year that I was born. Um, and you know, it was great i i I loved it, and I loved being um I loved being able to stand up in court and say. Your Honor, my name is Sarah Light. I'm here on behalf of the United States. Yeah, I have a you know, friend
0: who's in a similar position. She loves saying that.
1: There's there's something yeah. very um, uh, it that made me feel very proud of that, and that I felt a great responsibility to do justice and you know, um, and take the public interest into account, especially when enforcing environmental statutes. And basically, what I was doing was trying to recover money from firms that had polluted or government entities like municipalities that had polluted or try and get them to do cleanups. Um, And uh, so it was great. But while I was working as a prosecutor in New York, I was actually teaching as an adjunct. So um, in my last few years, I taught at Columbia in a Program on you must have
2: had just a lot of time on your hands.
1: <laughs> oh, so much time, so much time, and you know, various babies were born, and uh, throughout this, uh, throughout the this process, babies were born. exactly, <laughs> babies exactly. happened. Babies <laughs> happened as well. Um, no, it was great, but I, I knew that the time had come to make the switch when people would ask me, "So, Sarah, what's going on in your life?" And I would talk about what I was doing in my teaching, yeah. uh-huh. and not what I was doing in my cases. So that was the moment when it became clear that I wanted to kind of pursue some of these bigger questions about how all these different pieces fit together, as opposed to being kind of client driven. And did you? And we're doing a lot of your personal stuff. I love it. Did you also
0: apply to law schools and business
1: schools? I did. Yes. So I actually originally um, submitted my CV only to law schools. Uh But uh, the legal studies and business ethics department reached out to me because they were interested in hiring someone who worked in sustainability. And they you know, saw my uh, saw my CV. And um, as soon as I got the call, I kind of never looked back. Yeah. I felt like this was going to be the opportunity of a lifetime to be um, in this environment rather than in the law school environment. Right. And I think it has really broadened my scope to see this incredibly important role that private actors and business yeah. firms yeah. have. Yeah,
0: well, welcome. Thanks. You're listening to <laughs> Dollars
2: and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to Sarah Light, an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton. And we, I, I, what I'm... I love what you just said, because that's exactly what the Wharton Social Impact Initiative focuses on broadly. And I love that we get to have this conversation because we sort of get to span departments and work with, you know, we're not just within your department. We're not just in management. We get to have this sort of broad purview. And so you were talking about Walmart as an example. You were talking about sort of industry groups. But one of the areas of interest is this sort of emergent sharing economy. And I'm guessing the environmental effects of that and how laws and regulations. And, you know, give us an example of a company or two that our listeners would recognize as part of the sharing economy.
1: I'm sure all your listeners would be familiar with Uber and Lyft and Airbnb um, as kind of major players within the sharing economy. Um, and so my research in this area really stemmed from the fact that. Um, There's this incredible innovation happening right now in uh, the business world, and some of it is the technology, right? We've got electric cars and autonomous vehicles, and we've got smartphones enabling transformations in the way that business firms operate. Um, And one of the things that was really interesting to me was as the Ubers and Lyfts of the world were getting off the ground, when you look at the popular press – there's a lot of discussion, and often claims are made this is going to revolutionize the environment. People aren't going to have cars anymore mm-hmm. because they're just going to take Uber and Lyft. Um, and I'm a bit more of a skeptic, honestly, because from my perspective, what we have is lots and lots of people riding in cars, right? And lots and lots of people riding in cars that are generating greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and,
2: and just quickly, like, yeah. as you know, we do a lot of work and talk on the show on impact investing. And as an impact investor, I could go into an investment into Uber or Lyft with that thesis, right? That it was environmentally that it better. Was, right. Yeah. But you're sort of saying, hold the hold phones. The, yep. Do we know? Or like, what is the real claim there?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, again, my training is in law. So I think about this from the regulatory perspective. There are many people at Wharton who look at issues like this from the empirical perspective, which is... What, what impact do Uber and Lyft or the Ubers and Lyfts of the world have on greenhouse gas emissions? Do they go up or do they go down? Are the effects uniform across different cities? Do they go up in the non-urban areas but down in the urban areas, right? So oh, where where's the yeah. variation? Mm-hmm. But that's someone else's methodology. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in is the regulatory impact. And so um, initially... With some skepticism in mind, my question is, well, how does a regulator like New York City respond to the development of an Uber or a Lyft um, or the city of Philadelphia when we don't know, right? We don't know. So there are lots of ways that you could imagine that greenhouse gas emissions are going to go down. Let's say ordinarily families of four are two-car families. Maybe with Uber and Lyft being so convenient, they become three-car. I'm sorry, one-car families. They don't buy the second car, or they shed the second car that they have. You can calculate the lifecycle emissions involved in the production of that other car. Um, so maybe in the end, the greenhouse gas emissions go down, or maybe they use Uber or Lyft to get to the regional rail which they can't park there with their own car. But if they can get a ride and they don't have to park, then they take regional rail. That reduces their greenhouse gas emissions. There have been a few studies that actually suggest that there may be a slight increase in greenhouse gas emissions because of what's called modal shift. Uber and Lyft are so convenient that sometimes people would have walked or biked, but instead they do Uber and Lyft. Um guilty, right? Exactly. Um, especially during the evening hours when public transit is less available. Um, and then there's something called induced travel, which is rather than a trip that you would have taken by some other means like a bike or walking or public transportation, it, cr- it creates incentives for you to do more trips. A trip you wouldn't have taken without Uber or Lyft.
2: I might go to Target more often yes. now because I it's more accessible. I don't have to drive myself, and the bus was inconvenient anyway.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So um, there's a slight induced travel effect, according to one study. Um, there is modal shift away from public transportation toward Uber and Lyft. Now, interestingly, I have to point out that last... Within the last year, Lyft has announced that it is going to – or it is currently offsetting all of its greenhouse gas emissions from its rides. So I actually think that's a really important step in private environmental governance, right? right? Not required by any city, but you could imagine a, a city that's concerned about this saying all your cars need to be electric vehicles or you need to offset your emissions. What New York City has been mostly concerned about has actually been the congestion problem. I am just going to go to that because you I, – I, It's hard to know how much is is accurate, but it does
0: seem to me that the, um, like downtown Philadelphia, is a lot more crowded with, with cars.
1: Yes. So studies um, in New York City and London and elsewhere have shown that the number of for hire vehicles on the roads have increased dramatically. And I can't give you a specific percentage um, dramatically since the rise of of Uber or Uber and Lyft. And so uh, within the last year, the city of New York basically said, we're going to cap the number of vehicles on a temporary basis. Um, You know, originally with just taxis, there were. Medallions, which right. created there's a higher a barrier cow. to yeah. entry. Yeah. So, how did exactly. how do you
2: sort of create those barriers? Like, are they saying Uber, you are only allowed to create or offer because they don't license? Like, I, I, there's not that much of a barrier to entry to become an Uber or Lyft driver. Right. There's some background checks, but it's like if you pass their process, go have at it.
1: Absolutely. So, the truth is, I don't know exactly how Uber yeah. handles this on an internal basis but the the city is trying to get some measure of control over it mm-hmm. partly because of the congestion problem right and partly because the um you know one of the reasons why the supply caps were put in place in the first place was to ensure a fair standard of living for drivers right right and the value of a taxi medallion right taxi medallions are an enormous investment often for immigrant families yeah. who sort of pool their money to buy the medallion and the and the value The value has plummeted dramatically. So at one point I believe they were, you know, $800,000 or even maybe close to a million and now the value is less than $250,000. And if that's your retirement nest egg, that's very significant. So the kind of when I think about sustainability, I'm usually focused on the environment, but the sort of social impact and sustainability Concept is actually much broader when we're thinking about things like the sharing economy.
0: Well, and I think it's interesting too because you know we've we've been talking about Uber and Lyft versus taxis, but for me part of the the issue is also versus buses and public transportation, right? Yes. Because when you think about buses, can carry more people. Absolutely. And so that's the that for me is the real challenge. How do you get people back into buses when they are so? Not convenient.
2: I don't want to go back in the bus. I want to go back in the trolley, Cheryl. I want <laughs> yes, Philadelphia to bring the, the trolley back. Bring I mean, the we do trolleys. have them, but like they in Center City specifically. Uh-huh. If you've never been to Philadelphia, like they had so many trolleys, streetcars running on the streets, and then you know, in what the fifties or sixties, when the car came took over, they created buses. So that's a totally different topic, but like,
0: yeah, bring but back it's related.
1: Trolley. But it's a related topic, and this is really important, and it goes to sort of the regulatory universe of how cities are thinking about this from a planning perspective. So actually, I I applied for and received research funding to go to Copenhagen in the spring for Uh a week to do research on sustainable cities and transportation. I mean, that's a city where everybody owns two bikes and only a third of the people own cars, right? right? And so... You know, how do they do it? How do we have a universe in which seventy-five-year-old people commute to work and it's on not like bikes? They have great weather all the time in Copenhagen. No, right? you know, so it's so it's so it's a uh, so it's a really interesting, interesting challenge. And you know, things like dedicated bike lanes that are separated so cars can't ride on them. I mean, there are there are all sorts of things that cities can do.
2: So, Sarah, I told you right before the segment, um, this could be a jarring transition for you or our listeners. But but you knew we were going here.
1: I know where you're going. (laughs) You
2: also do something around something that you've called the military environmental complex. That sounds fascinating, and I want to know a little bit more.
1: Yes, I feel like you should go (laughs) dun-dun-dun. So so, um, if I were to kind of take a step back and put that project into the context of what we've been talking about, what I do in my research, it's all about kind of broadening what we think about as environmental law. So I talked about the law of the corporation affecting environmental law. We talked about private environmental governance actions by private actors as being environmental law. So that paper um, called the Military Environmental Complex and that whole sort of set of research projects was all about ways in which agencies other than the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency actually with – whose missions do not involve protecting the environment as their primary mission actually are important actors in the environmental space. And I wanted to focus on the military because one thinks of the military as the opposite of environmental protection, right? War is – uh, rapacious, it is consumptive. Um, if you look, it is destructive of the environment. If you look at basically every single major environmental law um, out there, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, toxic substances—you know everything. There is always a provision that exempts um, action when the head of the agency determines that it is for a national security purpose. So you could have a law that says you're not allowed to kill the whales or you're not allowed to do things that are going to hurt the whales. But But. if the Navy is using sonar technology that is for the purpose of military readiness, that's going to be exempt. Tough cookies. Tough cookies. So the environmental law conception of the military is – This is the opposite of environmental protection. So what I wanted to point out was the kind of counterintuitive narrative that, in fact, the Department of Defense is engaged actively in reducing its uh, fossil fuel use and its carbon footprint because it has determined and said repeatedly that climate change is a national security issue. Uh So climate change is a national security issue for the military for a host of reasons, mostly relating kind of to geopolitical forces. So if you think about climate change warming the Arctic and now opening up new shipping lanes, guess who's patrolling those shipping lanes, right? Russia is out there. Um, The Russian government a few years ago planted a titanium flag on the seabed directly under the north pole to claim the resources there. Mm-hmm. And so Does that count? Does that does that claim it? No. Okay. I'm going to say no although I believe technically it has not been determined yet. But no, <laughs> under under the uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, I do not believe that that claims the space. Um, if there are refugee crises as right. a result of global drought or other, you know, monsoons or people being displaced. The U.S. military is going to be called upon to address those considerations. It could lead to greater instability and greater global conflict. So, climate change creates national security issues. On the flip side, if you think about the military's mission, um, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the military. Uh, you know, was very well aware. Leadership in the military was very well aware of the fact that for every, you know, um, for every effort that they were making, they needed fuel, right? And so you have soldiers guarding fuel convoys as they're going through the mountains mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And more than two thousand people lost their lives um, as a result of attacks on fuel convoys. So mm-hmm. for every one fuel fuel convoy. That's one fuel fuel convoy that can be attacked, and that reduces the loss of life. If you are a Marine at a forward operating base and you need to run a diesel generator to power your operations, um, not only is it smelly and loud, but you've also got to bring the, the fuel there. And so if Marines are able to generate electricity through um, kinetic equipment that gathers electricity every time their knees move when they march or through solar blankets, that has a real impact. So the paper was kind of talking about this, both sort of identifying the alignment of values with environmental protection and and sort of reducing fossil fuel use, as well as talking about ways in which the military – is stimulating the development of new technologies that could potentially spill over into the civilian
2: Correct. world. Right. So
1: that was that was yeah. kind of the basis of the project.
2: So bear with me. Yes. I have my conceptual framework brewing in my head. When you think about that paper, so I'm also trying to apply a little bit of the um, the sort of Walmart example. If if you know, there's a legal framework that could make Walmart do something. And then that has spillover effects, of course, about the industry and the supply chain. You know, that's what they're avoiding to some degree. But then also the EP, Congress isn't passing laws demanding that the D- Department of Defense do any, you know, do these things. Or are they?
1: They are. Okay. So, so, yes. Quickly,
2: so quickly. That's, so that's good to know, because what I was going to say is, or is DOD more of the Walmart example right now, that in like in terms of the defense contracting and like uh, spurring innovations, that they're having that same Walmart effect?
1: It's, it's really interesting. So Congress actually has passed laws in this regard. Um, for example, Congress has mandated that the Department of Defense achieve um, – uh, 20% of its uh, energy needs through renewable energy sources by 2020. Huh. So 20 by 2020, right? That's the, that's the mantra. That comes by law, by Congress. Um, another example is that Congress has authorized the Department of Defense the, as the only U.S. agency that can enter into 30-year power purchase agreements. Every other agency is governed by regulations of the General Services Administration, which says 10 years. So if you're thinking about um, generating enough demand for the construction of a photovoltaic solar array, the investment that a private firm building that solar array would need in order to sort of guarantee that it's going to recoup its investment, much more doable on a 30-year time frame than on a 10-year time frame. So the military is currently entering into many contracts under, I believe, a $7 billion Multi award procurement vehicle um, to build photovoltaic solar arrays near military bases. They're being built with private financing, private developers on military land, and the military is agreeing to purchase the power. So that is because Congress authorized it. That being said, your Walmart example is actually really a good one because some of this, some of the demand is coming from the military to say, Congress, please authorize us to do this stuff. And so Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, when he was a commander in, I believe, Iraq, um, commented uh, you know, publicly, we need to be unleashed from the tether of fuel, right? Because he saw what was going on um, and how difficult it was to get fuel to these forward operating bases and people losing their lives guarding the fuel, that if we can just be less dependent upon fuel. We're going to be much more effective war fighters.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting because again, you can come at it from an environmental angle, but that's not what he's doing at all. I mean, no, it could it's be a nat- in the underground. It's a national security and and yes. for our business, it is yes. better for better for us if th- we can have this. Happen. I think
2: so. When I was working in international Definitely development, doing more State Department USAID type of work, I think you know a lot of while Congress wasn't allocating as much budget to State or USAID. Some of those funds were still going to DOD because it was still a national security priority to still do a lot of the inter, quote unquote international development work. So you can, see, I see a very close parallel. Make it, make it a national security argument. And, exactly. you know,
1: absolutely right. And then you get the funding. I mean, that's how highways were built right. in the United States. This is because we need to be able to evacuate our military. Right. right. That's the and and who uses the highways? Right. Everybody. We do. Yes. Right. Um, just to be, just to have a slightly less. Uh, optimistic spin on it. Um, You know, I was reading the news this morning, and the the concept of national security is rather a malleable one. And so depending upon who's defining it, um, it can also be used as a way to say what we need is to make sure that coal-fired power plants stay in business when they're near military bases, because we need to ensure a reliable supply of power for the military bases. Well, that was so, the argument
0: for steel, right? You know, absolutely. We have to build our own steel. We can't rely on somebody else to do it. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So it is a malleable concept and is not always aligned with the environmental protection goals. But in this one case, it happens
2: to. Got it. Well, so in the, just the last couple of minutes that we have... Um, you know what's next on your research agenda? Is it just digging deeper into this particular area, or what, what's up?
1: Right. So I have you know twelve projects. There's always <laughs> something. There's always something brewing. Um, right now uh, at Wharton, there's a tremendous amount of interest in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Students want to learn about it, and I'm. And teaching... You're saying, but Bitcoin rather than say
0: just bro- blockchain. Yeah, more sorry. Generally. Well, Crypto- bit- yeah, cryptocurrency. Yeah, cryptocurrency.
1: But from my perspective, actually, I'm glad you made the clarification. I'm not a finance person, so I'm less interested in the financial implications, and I'm much more interested in the environmental implications of distributed ledger technology. And um, so I figured I'm teaching environmental management law and policy in the spring. My students are going to want to know about this, so I'm going to learn about this, and I decided I should write a paper about it. So. I'm right now looking at, you know, what are kind of the promises and perils of blockchain and distributed ledger technology for environmental protection. Wow. And part of that is, is it because the computer power needed to generate that is so
0: huge? Yes. So that's one
1: of the perils, that the the proof of work – which is the method that Bitcoin uses where a a tremendous amount of computing power is needed to verify the blocks. That is a huge energy drain. Um, But a number of uh, organizations are trying to reduce the energy needed by kind of um, changing the algorithms. And then on the positive side, if you think about anything related to supply chain transparency – um, you know, blockchain is great for supply chains, and so there are times when you really want supply chain transparency for environmental reasons. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, firms are experimenting with this as well. Cool.
2: Wow. Well, I'm, it sounds like lots of cutting edge work coming out of Sarah Light's research agenda. So, thank you so much. This has been such a fun segment. We great. we definitely have to follow up again. Uh, we've been speaking with Sarah Light, an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM One Thirty Two.